This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest. We'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode... We speak to Meg John Barker. I spent decades painfully unpicking my sex education and learning something different. We talk about the history of attitudes to sex in the UK. Sex was some stuff you did and you did different kinds of acts and some of those were seen as sinful and some of them weren't. Most of them were seen as sinful, in fact. There was only like one kind that wasn't seen as sinful. And what you learn after reading 60 sex advice books cover to cover. Learn 60 positions and then you'll have hot sex for the rest of your life. I'm here to tell you, no, that isn't going to do it, you know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Digri Waite and I'm joined as ever by accredited sex and relationship therapist Kate Campbell. Hello mum. Hello Diggs. Every week mum and I give sex and relationships a good going over with a guest and today we're very glad to be joined by a writer who covers all things sex, gender and relationships. It's Meg John Barker. We have a great interview with Meg John coming up in which we talk about how and why they started educating about sex. We also talk about polyamory and um, crabs, but yeah, not that kind. It was really good, wasn't it, Mum? You're a big fan of Meg John Barker. Oh, I am, yes. It was It was great. And it did range far and wide. We talked about sex therapy and about being yourself and about identity and gender and all, yeah, all sorts of stuff. It was wonderful. Yeah, so that's coming up later. But... Just beforehand, we wanted to talk about the hot new TV show that we watched last night. It's a sin. Yeah. For me, one thing that I've coming away with is that it's such a great way for me to learn about a period and a time and a thing that I just don't know much about. So Mm. it's such a great way for me to learn. Yeah, I think we've tended to forget that when HIV first appeared, obviously nobody knew much about it. And it was really scary and it was a death sentence Mm. and just ripped through a community and lots of people were lost Mm. and people I knew were lost well into the 90s and now we've got retroviral drugs and a lot of more medical support and it is no longer a death sentence at all people don't so much develop full-blown AIDS in this country at any rate. I mean, even on this podcast, we've had so many guests who the AIDS epidemic and in the 80s has had a, such an effect on them that, you know, it still affects them to this day. I mean, mm. it affects everyone in some way. But obviously, we had Paul Sinha talking about Section 28, uh, which obviously was the piece of legislation saying that you weren't yeah, allowed... I, yes, it, yeah. You and teachers couldn't talk about it. it. had to... Sex education had to be about men and women in the nuclear mm. family and it was illegal to promote any other form of sexuality or identity. Mm. And that sort of drives everything underground. It drives 
people underground. It, it creates shame. And it's really mm. fascinating to see in its ascent, to see in the programme, the intersectionality, the, the amount of discrimination that was just casual absolutely mm. casual so mm. it wasn't just about being gay i mean it's interesting that the gay guys in the show have black friends and other people who understand where they're coming from who have also experienced lots of discrimination mm. themselves and it's, these marginalized groups yeah. bonding over that shared fact that they're marginalized yeah yeah we also had obviously david stewart on talking about the effects of hiv on his life yeah in the last series yeah but like you mentioned before we learned about the medicines we have today to prevent you from getting hiv or passing it on and and just we're we're talking a lot about death at the moment because Mm. of the world we're currently living in a lot of people feel the need for memorial and i think we need perhaps a more mainstream memorial for the people that we lost to AIDS because Mm. people are still being lost around the world where AIDS isn't treated in places where it isn't and we probably need to just take it seriously and think about you know the world being a very different place if those people hadn't been lost Mm. it's incredibly sad indeed indeed but hopefully more of Russell T Davies writing going forward more people learning about this sort of stuff through it's a sin like myself learning more about these periods and hopefully that can only put us in a better stead for the future. Mm. Speaking of the future, the future for this particular episode is us speaking to Dr. Meg John Barker. And I began by asking them what their sex education was like. Well, mine was in the 1980s, which isn't a great mm. start for getting a sex education. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if yours was in the 1980s as well, Kate, but it was in good times. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was thinking, really, my main sex education came in the form of three books, which were left on my bed <laughs> as a child, which I think most of my <gasps> friends got as well. And I had a little, wow. in preparation to this, I had a little look back on them. And, you know, in some ways they weren't terribly bad. They were sort of books about growing up and sex, but... You know, it's all about boys and girls being very different and there are only boys and girls. And then boys have penises, Mm. girls have vaginas. The only kind of sex that really counts is penis and vagina sex. The goal of it is an orgasm and you must have sex in order to get love. So it's all of these kind Mm. of standard messages. And to be honest, as a kid, none of those messages really mapped onto my experience of myself or erotic stuff at all. And what I know now from the research is actually very few people can hit all of those Mm. buttons of what it means to have kind of ideal sex or an ideal sexuality um so there's that real disconnect and i think that's very painful for a lot of people Mm. and and i think those messages are still out there by and large in the mainstream yeah was that then a major driver in leading you down the path that you've gone down because now that you have become this big sex educator etc how did you get into that yeah yeah i think you know, personal journey really mm. of um, I was I sort of bullied quite badly at school for really not fitting mm. what was seen as sexually attractive and normal and, you know, sort of having really different experiences. But I gradually kind of shaped myself so that I could kind of fit into all that and ended up in some quite kind of conventional relationships, I guess, and conventional sex. And it just wasn't good for me, mm. you know, in any way. And then gradually I began to come across communities that were doing things differently, like the bisexual community, kink community, polyamorous community. I also was studying, you know, because I'd done psychology, so I kind Mm. of started specialising in sex and relationships there and then just started a personal exploration of, you know, what other ways are there to do 
all of this and and relationships and the way they all come together and that's really been like my my ongoing journey can, and, can yeah. I jump in please can do, I Kate. jump in because I just I because I want to say Meg John has done more than anybody I think to normalize being human mm. you know and uh, because so much of the media and sex education and everything expects us to be superhuman to mm. be have amazing sex it's not just good enough sex and not even acknowledging there are some people who don't want to have sex at all mm. or that there are times when some people don't and it's just so wonderful so I'm always referring people to your resources especially rewriting the rules which is a marvellous book oh thank Mm. you yeah well that was the first one I wrote you know because I I was being this psychologist and eventually you know trained as a sex therapist too but what I always really wanted to do was write books and I really Mm. wondered you know again preparing for this show and thinking about these three books left on my bed like was Mm. that the starting point Mm. of you know I just wanted to put some better books out there and I've actually been writing this sort of trilogy on sex which I hadn't even realized but I wrote a book called enjoy sex how when and if you want to with sex education Justin Hancock mm. and then I've just published this book sexuality a graphic guide which is a comic book about how sex and sexuality mm. work and I'm just finishing off writing one called how to understand your sexuality with my other collaborator Alex Ian Taffy so I feel like I've finally written the three books which I would have liked to have been left on my bed <laughs> when that's, I was yeah. 11 well, years amazing. old <laughs> yeah well that's perfect because now you know there'll be parents at home feeling like I now know which three books I can put on my kid's bed no I, I don't I don't think that you know, <laughs> I think there's an implicit message that maybe sex isn't a great thing to to talk about if you just get left so I think it is better to have a bit more of an ongoing conversation with kids about all these things an ongoing conversation and then you can say here's some books for further reading should you like to you know exactly Exactly. yeah one of which is a comic book which is always good perfect what a way (laughs) in what a a way in and very helpful for sex stuff because I think a lot of people sometimes need pictures and things to understand exactly uh Mm. what's going on I was listening to your TED talk and you said at one point that we're in a state in our culture of relationship uncertainty. Can you expand what you meant by that? Well, I think people are finding it just doesn't work for them. You know, Mm. none of it. I mean, obviously, you know, the high rates of singledom, living alone, Mm. relationships going wrong, relationship breakdown, divorce, and, you know, the massive pain caused by all of that. Mm. We're still on a sort of a sort of old model, but it isn't even a traditional model, actually. It was kind of invented in the 1950s, if you go along with some historians of this kind of, you know, find the one, stay with them together, they will complete you, you'll have great sex for the rest of your life. And I think about a sex and relationship therapist like Esther Perel, who says it's actually virtually impossible to have a long-term relationship over decades that is both warm and hot, is how mm. she puts it. You know, mm. we're looking for companionate love over a long period of time and this ongoing passion and mm. all of these books are being sold on the myth that you will and then making people feel like a complete failure when they just can't you know the advice in like so many sex advice books is just like learn 60 positions and then you'll have hot sex for the rest of your life I'm here to tell you no that isn't gonna mm. do it mm. you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean most sex therapy yeah. is unpicking what you learnt in school mm. and you know teaching people that it's not all about having a great orgasm I mean most people don't even notice their orgasm they're just so glad they've had one yeah it seems but yeah this is it. This goal-focused approach to sex, as sex therapist Peggy Kleinplatz puts it, you know, it's we know that just being present to the moment is a way better bet. And again, 
also this this idea that sex is this one thing you know that has to Mm. be penis and vagina sex or or something like that Mm. you know that's the only thing that counts and that should lead to Mm. orgasm again we know that it doesn't for so many people Mm. we know that so many other sexual experiences can be just as exciting or more so than penis and vagina sex and orgasms like if we could just help people expand their erotic menu Mm. you know the black feminist or trey lord suggests that the erotic is this massive thing and we narrow it down just to this really narrow mm. thing that we see in sex advice and porn and so on. And it's like, instead, we could expand people's erotic menus to just include all of the possible things and you know, start by tuning in to what gets you excited, what makes you feel most alive, what brings most pleasure. And as you alluded to, Kate, then that doesn't also exclude people who are asexual or on the asexual mm. spectrum. Everyone can just tune in to what they like and follow that yeah. rather than having to narrow it down to a particular thing. Precisely. And it's also important to know that it's different at different times. David Schnarch always used to say, you know, people, most people are having deficit sex because they rule out aspects of touch because somebody didn't want them on one occasion. And so they rule them out forever. And so they're down to about three moves. Yeah, and absolutely. And it was so much fear. You know, it makes me think there's also a study that found that people in long term relationships know about I think it was about 60% of what their partner likes sexually and only about 20% of what they dislike because no yeah. one's communicating about it. So it's yeah. just like yeah. these two people in a room like so frightened, yeah. you know, of getting it Guesswork. wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's where the process of consent comes into it. Because as you say, like mum there, you know, where someone may have not liked something one time, that no then f- might have been a no forever, but because you haven't discuss that you don't know that so then you then build up this 20% of what you think they don't like you build up 60% of what you think they like and then you're stuck in your ways forever and how are you supposed to have this incredible amazing orgasmic Mm. um, life fulfilling Mm. sex that people say that you should be having when that's what you're working with it's wild I studied for a piece of research about 60 sex advice books um it was one of the worst things I ever did reading 60 sex (laughs) advice books and one of the things that staggered me was that the average number of pages in the books devoted to consent was less than 1%. Wow. If you look at teen stuff, it's all about consent and mm. safety and danger, mostly about don't mm. do it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you do do it, do it consensually, and that's really hard. And then suddenly people turn like 16 or 18, and none of the sex advice has anything about mm. consent in it, as if you would just naturally know how to do it. But actually, you know, consent needs to be ongoing, like you were saying, what mm. somebody feels one time might be different. It's really about like treating that body in front of you whether it's your own body and solo sex or somebody else's body or a number of people's bodies Mm. depending on the kind of sex you're having Mm. it's like that body or those bodies are unique this time you know they Mm. may be different from where they were before they may be different in the future so let's tune in together or with ourselves with what feels good right now Mm. but when people are so scared and they're so trying to be normal and not get it wrong It makes it almost impossible, doesn't it, to be either consensual Mm. or have pleasurable experience. Mm. And it's difficult, I suppose, in some ways to divorce yourself from that. Because we always say this and we say you have to have these open conversations and you need to communicate, etc. But I think even in those conversations, people will still feel the need to clutch on to the rules because they fear what the other person may think of what they're mm. going to say. Yeah. How do you how do you get around that? Because I think that's so hard to get yourself out of. Shame and fear are huge around mm. this and I can speak from personal experience I've been unpicking this stuff for decades and still just there is that kind of thing mm. is there because it just it's um 
yeah, it's really in the body. I'm reading a lot at the moment about the sort of trauma literature and the embodiment literature, which really explains how this stuff gets rooted in. If you have those experiences of rejection, bullying, discrimination, you know, it's, it's even harder to feel mm -hmm. able to be vulnerable and open. So I don't know, with my books, the way I tackle it is by starting with what are the messages around sex that we receive and really, you know, getting at why those are so problematic. And then, you know, it's so much wider than sex really it's like mm. the answers are what we might say in, in all kinds of therapy which is about learning how to tune into your body you know learning how to be vulnerable how to be open with other people you know it's quite a long-term work and quite mm. deep internal work i would say but if you do it it not only will it make your sex life a whole lot better but mm. it will actually make the whole of life a whole lot better i think these ideas about being present to yourself and others and being consensual they're about far more than kind of just a bedroom and actually it won't work in sex unless we kind of apply them to the whole of our lives so one of my big messages is like well we can start with sex but the things we need to learn in order to have good sex pleasurable sex or to know it's okay not to have sex those are the same things we need to learn for our whole lives mm -hmm. yeah. do you find the same kate with you know in terms of sex and relationship therapy that you maybe you start with sex but actually it's much wider stuff you end up talking about i think the two need to go alongside each other and part of the way i do it is to get people to learn from the sex therapy to learn life lessons from yeah. the sex therapy like about not knowing so not letting them talk to one another about what they've just done Mm. which is the antithesis of everything we learn. I mean, it's so counterintuitive, but they are empowered by that mm. because they suddenly force back onto their own resources. And if you're working with their own resources at the same time, suddenly you find people who just, just explode. And a really mm. interesting thing is that while they're having sex therapy, they quite often get a new job, yeah. um, change their attitudes, end unhelpful relationships. They suddenly become so empowered throughout their lives. So exactly what you're saying. Isn't that wonderful? And that, that's what Audrey Lord said as well. Oh, it was like if you really learn to tune into the erotic as this kind of life force rather than just you know genital sex yeah. she said something like you demand of life that everything brings that degree of aliveness and pleasure yes exactly. and that, that that would lead you like you say into kind of better relationships with work and all kinds of other things but also more towards social justice because you'd also believe everybody should have this right um so it's kind of a political act and a personal act so so true what you say about consent from yourself as well because that's so important so many people are doing things they don't want to be doing because they feel they ought to mm. because they feel they should mm. when you say to somebody how's the world treated you or what's life like for you what what's it like being you they they look baffled and say oh I don't know and they're thinking what's the right answer here mm. rather than am I allowed to say this am I allowed to say what it's like you know that's yeah. the usual response which is just awful really it is and I, yeah. I really think our culture you know this was a big message in rewriting the rules and pretty much everything I've done is our culture really encourages people to feel bad about each other it uses yeah. shame to get people to please each other to be these kind of docile citizens who behave themselves and sex is one of the main areas that happens you know this narrow yeah. idea of what you have to be to be normal to be attractive to get love and belonging and you know it keeps everyone in their little boxes I'm very scared about straying outside of them and that's just hugely damaging to people I think it's difficult though because it takes a big amount of bravery I think to step out of those mm. boxes I mean there was a really really nice metaphor Meg John that I think you know what I'm about to say about crab Yes. Uh, yes. Would you mind explaining that for the listeners? <laughs> yes, please. Yeah. Um, I got it from the author who's no longer with us, sadly, Terry Pratchett. And in one of his books, he has this moment where there's a, there's a girl who kind of fits into the mainstream pretty well. She's fairly popular. And another character says to her, 
the society is like this bucket of crabs basically and apparently if you have a bucket with loads of crabs in it the crabs that are in the bucket if any crab tries to escape the other crabs will try and pull them back into the bucket and this is this metaphor for society of like you know these norms we keep getting pulled back into if we want to belong and also that that it is really scary to escape the bucket and so i imagined you know somebody's in that what we might call the heteronormative crab bucket the the crab bucket of being kind of in the normal heterosexual relationship as we've seen in the movies and stuff maybe they try and get out of the bucket all their friends try and pull them back in try and pull them back in <laughs> maybe they do manage to escape but then they're not the beach you know and it's like seagulls might get them but they see over across the beach there's another bucket with crabs in you know maybe it's the queer crab bucket or the asexual crab bucket or the kinky crab bucket and they go and get a nap and then there's a whole other set of rules and all the mm. crab buckets, all the crabs in that bucket pull them in. And I th- that's the kind of situation we're, we're in. Like we're encouraged, you know, whichever group we're in, that there's this set of norms that you have to follow. And like, this is the only way in order to belong. And um, yeah, I guess, I guess my work is about trying to help people and identify those crab buckets and find a different way of doing things. And operate as a crab on the beach. <laughs> the lone crab. <laughs> yeah, the lone crab. But where where you can go and, you know, stand next to crab buckets at different times, perhaps, and take different things from different crab buckets. But, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And sort of have, a, and you know, it's, it's lone, but it's also community. But it's about building um, solidarity and community, but not in that way of us and them, I suppose. Mm. that That's the crab bucket mm. one. It's like, here's the normal people and here's the weirdos. But then you're in the weirdo crab bucket and you're putting down the norms, you know, mm. and it's sex positive and sex negative is a really good example of this. You know, you're in a sex negative crab bucket that kind of says that sex is dangerous and you should only have it in this particular way. Maybe you escape and you find a kind of sex positive community, but they're saying everyone's got to be having sex and they must be swinging from the chandeliers and that's mm. no good either. So, you know, the big thing of mine is getting beyond the binaries and it's getting beyond those us and them kind of normal and abnormal you know functional and dysfunctional all of those kind of divisions that we're that used to kind of um, put us in the buckets as social creatures as human creatures like you say it's so difficult to do that i mean is there any like fundamentals that someone should take with them if they want to be able to relieve themselves of the horrible pressures of these different social rules Mm. and social instructions yeah it's it's a tricky one it's a few different things i mean there are like great practices that people can use to get more able to be with that discomfort of say not fitting and buddhist and mindfulness practices that's actually what they're all about you know the practices of kind of being present and being with discomfort so on the internal level you can do that kind of thing Mm. and i think on the external level you really need systems and structures of support you can't do this alone like you said we are Mm. a social creatures degree you know so you do need to find others who will support this. And again, you might find them in queer community or ace community or trans community or sex positive community, but trying to find folks who are up for being that kind of critical about it, who aren't just going to put another load of norms in place and say you have to fit into this, you know, Mm. but are able to keep kind of questioning, like who are we excluding here? How Mm. is this working for everybody? Is it working for everybody? Um, Yeah, how can we keep embracing that not knowing or that uncertainty that's right and that meditative Mm. process of sort of watching your thoughts so when Mm. so when you have those thoughts you don't immediately act on them or immediately think that is exactly how i feel you go why am i thinking that so that when you think let's say you subscribe to the to the normie group and you're shunning the abnormies Mm. or whatever you think yourself well why why why, (laughs) you know my my instead of having the thought of 
shunning the abnormies <laughs> and, yeah. and acting on it. You have the thought of shunning the abnormies and watch that thought and see it and notice it and go, why am I thinking that thought? Is there any reasons? Yeah. Is that right? Is that true? Yeah. Do I need to act on that? And yeah, maybe, maybe that's the way to do it. I think so. And I think yeah. I think there's all of both of those things in most of us as well. There's that, that desire to be belong and be part of the group and fit in. And there's also the desire to be free and be able to express ourselves and be authentic. So mm. actually, like, you know, that's a really good example of like you kind of notice that. I'm like affiliating with the normies here and putting mm. down the weirdos. Yes. But another time you might feel like affiliated with the weirdos yes. and putting down the normies. And when you notice that you do both, that's mm. really helpful. And again, that's slowing down and noticing that meditation and other practices do journaling. That really helps you to notice, ah, oh, I do that too, I do that too. And that, that kind of helps you to just be able to be with the complexity of it all rather than constantly trying to go back to those binaries of who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. Mm. I mean, you guys have, have shared some great names and you guys are so knowledgeable. The only thing I can throw in here is Nietzsche, which is oh, a very... Always very... throwing a bit of existentialism <laughs> to, to agree. But I feel like it's, very, it's, just wow. very, it's just very basic, you know, because everyone's heard of Nietzsche. But I think he said integrate the shadow. And I think that's kind of similar to how this is, where it's like we can be quite binary and you're like, this is right, this is wrong, this is who mm. I am, this is who I isn't. Whereas integrating a shadow just reminding yourself that life cannot be all good as, mm. as humans we know that life cannot be good even though that's what we keep telling ourselves even mm. though that's what we're told by society if you buy this thing if you do this way life will mm. be eventually amazing that's not going to happen so once you know that that means i think you can start to operate within both mm. areas some days you'll be shunned by the normies some days you'll be shunning the abnormies yeah, yeah. but you need to recognize that both those things will happen and it's a fluctuation and once you come to terms with that and come to peace with that that's not going to be amazing that's not going to be great mm. but no you will be at peace with it i 100 percent agree and, and honestly that's actually why we chose um, for all of these graphic guides that um, we do, Jules Scheel is the illustrator of them. We have a kind of background theme. And for the one on sexuality, we chose kind of horror. So it's got this kind of mm. quite playful Scooby-Doo meets Rocky Horror Show kind of background. But the reason for that is exactly what you say, is we have to embrace the shadow in this area. And in fact, mm. I think the worst things that happen in terms of sexuality, you know, like people actually being killed and discriminated against mm. for their sexuality, and also people hiding aspects of their sexuality from themselves and acting abusively and non-consensually, all of that comes from trying to repress the shadow, right? From mm. not being able to get that, you know, sex often is about power. You know, we might have quite dark fantasies sometimes, you mm. know, that sex is sometimes a way of processing trauma. Like we need to look in the shadow territory, exactly as you say, if we don't, that's actually when the bad stuff happens is when we mm. pretend it's all light and there is no shadow or that could be, you know, that we could just have great sex in a very normative kind of way and that would all be fine. You know, that that's mm. actually where we get to that much more dangerous territory where sex becomes abusive or compulsive or, you know, really damaging. But people people come to, to therapy saying, is this okay? You know, and, and feeling bad about themselves and full of shame and yes, 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 yeah. yes, okay, yeah. That's why we need those models of diversity. You know, I think yeah. a lot of this comes down to normal. And mm. I've read one book that, and a few actually, that suggests that, you know, this was an invention 100, 150 years ago, this invention of normal, yeah. that it was the important thing to be. People didn't buy into that before. Like, they didn't identify themselves as a the kind of person who was no. normal or abnormal. But it was part of colonialism. Like if you could say that white Western men 
middle-class men were the norm <laughs> and everybody else was a bit less normal. Mm -hmm. You could justify colonised people, enslaving people, killing people out in the name of eugenics. Like, that's where that came from. Yeah. And it's just got this awful legacy in terms of mental health, disability, yeah. sexuality, gender, relationships. So, yeah, I think really, like, if it comes back to, you know, what should we be doing? Questioning normal, questioning normal all of the time. Well, yeah, and it's so much a question of language mm. as well. I mean, I, I think you, you probably know better than me, but wasn't heterosexuality as a word, didn't it originally mean oversexed or something? Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a negative term originally. Yeah. That I think it was sort of Victorian era when they invented those terms, homosexuality and heterosexuality. No one thought of themselves as having a sexuality, no. like it was an identity. Yeah. It was just like sex was some stuff you did and you did different kinds of acts and some of those were seen as sinful and some of them weren't. Most of them were seen as sinful, in fact. There was only, like, one kind that wasn't seen as sinful. Um, and, yeah, like, then they invented those terms. And, like you say, that those original sexologies, to be heterosexual was to be really hypersexual. Mm. It was about going after it for pleasure, which was seen as, like, not what should be motivating you at all, right? God, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a historian, but I did a bit of research for the Sexuality Graphic Guide because we always like to have a bit about how things have changed over mm. time. And it was, yeah, really illuminating to see people have had such different understandings of sexuality mm. at different times and places, which is another thing that shows us that there is no normal when mm. it comes to human sexuality. It is diverse. Everything is diverse. You know, the animal world is diverse. But as humans, for some reason, we've got so obsessed with like putting things in the boxes of normal and trying mm. to get people to conform to them to the extent that every single person pretty much who comes to a therapist of any kind wants to be normal. It's again that, that juxtaposition that we were talking about before in that it makes you feel safe because you're like, oh, I'm part of a group and we all do things the same way and I know what the rules mm -hmm. are. But then it makes you feel unsafe because you're thinking, but these rules don't quite work for me in this moment and I they're really oppressive and I actually hate them. But at the same time, I like the safety of them. Mm -hmm. So it's that horrible, you know. <sighs> so right. Yeah. You've put it so well. Uh, the book actually starts with this great quote from Gail Rubin. Um, Every culture draws an ever-shifting line between sexual order and chaos. If anything is permitted to cross the line, we fear that the barrier against scary sex will crumble and something unspeakable will skitter across. Mm. <laughs> oh. I love that. Yeah. It's Literally. exactly what you're saying. It's like that, you know, we want to belong. So we get, but then we're just, there's always that nagging feeling of like, what if they find this out about me? Mm. And then that barrier will crumble yeah. and I will be revealed. I will be exposed as this shameful thing. And we just need to get away from that idea that any of it is shameful mm. as long as it's done consensually all of it is fine you know and that's why earlier i asked about the bravery and i think sometimes it is bravery because you know at the moment we are polyamory is slowly becoming more accepted but still the other day on a popular morning tv show they had a um a thruple on and they were you know they were pointing and they were saying oh you know it was a uh, it was a man and two women and they were being like oh we know why it's great for the man but why is it great for you two you know all those sorts of things <laughs> and they were the abnormies and they were being pointed at freak of the week format yeah it's uh, you know there's so many other ways of doing polyamory mm -hmm. and then yeah like asked to explain themselves as if everybody else is isn't doing relationships in wild and wonderful ways too it's just that they're not talking about it you know yeah. mm -hmm. at best you're going to be like shunned and shamed at worst mm. you're going to be treated like you are dangerous and dangerous to society and i think some of these yeah. groups like you know kink groups bdsm things and stuff as well sometimes people see them as a danger and a threat and you right. think well like you said before if everyone there is doing it consensually they're not trying to press it on anyone else mm. it doesn't yeah. have to be that way plus also it's so common 
Mm. Like huge amounts of people have sexual fantasies about power and pain mm. and sensation, like the kinky kind of stuff. It's like the most common sexual fantasies that actually most people have. Mm. So what's that doing to people that they're seeing that that sense of that's dangerous? You know, it's shameful. It's a really bad thing. You're internalizing that and you know that that's your go-to fantasy. Mm. Literally, most people listening to this program now know their go-to fantasy is something kinky. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. But they've internalized, it's just an awful thing to do, what's happening in that person's body. Like, please, yeah. we need to free this. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Usually uh, what we like to pe- ask people at the end of our episodes is how was it for you and was it <laughs> was it good for you too? Um, is, there, yeah, is there anything you're taking away? I love it. A bit of debrief and aftercare. Always good. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> after glow. Exactly. All, exactly. All part of the consent yeah. sex bubble that we're trying to foster here. Oh, I just think what you're doing is brilliant, you know, and then just, as I said before, you know, having many voices out there um saying this mm. stuff in different ways that different people can hear is really really mm. important so just mm. yeah thank you for the work you're doing i think that more of us who are trying to do this in the more diverse ways as possible is just yeah what's needed no oh, it's been so lovely to have you on, yeah. on the show thank you <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh dear oh dear yes it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show yes i hope we speak very soon thank you so much again thanks a lot bye it's the mailbag, thank Katie Queries, two podcasts at hatch.com. It's the mailbag, thank Katie Queries, podcasts at hatch with two T's. Hello there, I have a query for Kate. I would like to know when the real sex education mailbag starts. The real sex education mailbag starts right now. Thank you. Thank you so much again to Dr. Meg John Barker for taking the time to come and speak to us. It was absolutely brilliant. Right, now it's time for me to put some of the questions that you've sent in to us via podcasts at hatchet.com or via the hashtag RealSexEDU to Kate, an accredited sex and relationships therapist. First question, Mum, is from someone named Willow. And I love that name. Mm. And Willow says, Me and my husband have decided we're going to spice up lockdown by having a date night. I think it's a great idea, but now it's coming up. I don't know what to do for it. What shall I include? Oh, that's really sweet. Just want to say, Willow, I really hope that we haven't missed the date night. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but, uh, But let's say we haven't. And either way, I'm sure lots of people are having date nights during lockdown. So 
two questions, Mum. What is date night? <laughs> and two, what should you do for date night? Date nights can be a bit oppressive. I'm not a massive fan, to be honest, because simply because people sometimes feel that date nights have to be terribly romantic and include lots of sex. And actually, sometimes that doesn't work. What I would say about a date night is to plan it beforehand, plan what you're going to do. I mean, a lot of people like to surprise their partner, which is lovely, so long as the surprise is within boundaries that, that are preset and it's not something extraordinary like well for an interesting date here we're going to jump out of a plane when someone has a fear of heights or something mm. like that but um predetermining that this is a, a space where you're not going to talk about things that are bothering you at the moment this is not an, an opportunity to sit down and thrash things out this is meant to be fun so that's the main thing about a date night it's supposed to be fun so you've got to think about the things that you enjoy doing and at the moment that might mean going for a walk getting a takeaway having a meal for two, curling up on the sofa with your favourite movie, playing sex games, perhaps, if that's what you want to do, having a bath together, just lying naked together. Any of those things would be fun. But a lot of date nights include food and drink, and people often get quite tipsy. And then sometimes that pressure to be sexual at the end of the evening spoils the whole evening because people worry about it. So I would absolutely agree beforehand that if you want to be sexual, be sexual, be as sexual as you want to be, but don't make that a prerequisite. Don't lay down rules about it. And then if it doesn't happen, it's not a failure because so many people say, oh, we had a date night last night and we didn't have sex again. Well, you don't have to. And a lot of people actually enjoy being sexual the morning after a date night. Mm. The date night is supposed to be fun and bring you close and not be oppressive, which they sometimes can be. I think that's absolutely right. And I think the thing that really struck home there for me is for a lot of us in lockdown, especially if we're living together, you know, you're talking about lots of things that are going on at the moment, maybe mm. the work that you're going through, et cetera, et cetera. If you say date night is a space where a lot of the things we do might be very similar. Mm. We might have dinner together and then sit in front of the sofa and watch TV. But this night is going to be slightly different where the emphasis isn't on real life. The children, work, the in-laws, COVID. Exactly. And it's about us two and mm. having fun. And yeah. obviously then the pressure is to have fun. But if you know what is fun and you guys communicate what's fun for you guys beforehand, then you can engineer your evening to have fun. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a big fan of planning. I mm. mean, some people love surprises. And I always think surprises are really overrated because it's so nice to look forward to things. And it's also so nice that something happens that you want to happen, not something that you're going along with because you don't want to upset the other person. It's funny. I read this question and I thought, oh, mum's going to list off a load of aphrodisiacs. <laughs> you know, red wines, chocolate, <laughs> mushrooms, etc. Um, but in fact, mushrooms. you've a mushrooms and aphrodisiac. I don't know why they're in my list of aphrodisiac. No oh, mussels. That's Ooh. what I'm thinking of. Not mushrooms. <laughs> Apparently, these are all foods that make you want to get you round. Oh, is it oysters? Oh, oysters. maybe it's oysters. I don't know. But I thought yeah. you were going to list off loads of that, and instantly you were like, "This isn't about sex." And I was like, "God damn it." I mean, obviously, you're the professional, but if I was giving the advice, people would go away with a big shopping list of food rather than actual, you know. Yeah, but if that rocks your boat, if your thing is oysters and champagne and that's what you consider to be a relaxed, fun night, then absolutely get them. Mm. 
if you can afford them, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Things, the things that make you feel relaxed and as if you're having a treat. The point is, it's supposed to feel like a, a shared treat. Mm, that's really nice. All right. The next question is from someone who wants to remain anonymous. And they have said, my partner always insists we both wash before sex. It's really annoying because it means that we can never be spontaneous. And I always feel like they reject me if we both haven't had a shower. Is that normal? Well, I suppose it depends. We need more information. If this is someone who is very particular about hygiene in general, I'm surprised you're surprised in a way. Mm. But sometimes people take it to extremes and they are constantly washing and that can be quite difficult for them because they get sore hands and things from from constant washing so that that might be a, a bit more unusual but actually you want to be clean for sex and it's one of the reasons why sexual spontaneity is really difficult in a lot of countries people wash after they go to the loo so they might wash more than once a day and that's something that we're not so keen on in this country so maybe that's something to get used to maybe have a b-day installed so that you can wash more often and so then you will be ready for spontaneous sex at any moment and maybe your partner would agree that it's something you probably need to talk about but I, I sort of think that a, a shared shower or bath or something can be actually very sexy and it might be part of your routine and certainly something that I would actually quite encourage. Mm. I think that's a, that's a good idea it can be part of the foreplay or part of the you know sex as mm. well however i wonder whether maybe what if someone's self-conscious about themselves in the in the shower you know they don't necessarily want their partner to see them washing intimate parts of their body in that case what do you do then well then i guess you'd have separate showers wouldn't you um yeah. but i think most people want to be clean i mean you would mm. it would be horrible to put your partner off because you weren't you mm. know i'm always saying this it comes up a lot in sex therapy, when you're talking to couples, they often push one another away because they don't feel clean. I mean, if you've got coffee breath, why would you want yeah. to kiss someone? Mm. If you if you feel sweaty, why would you want to kiss someone? If you've just been to the loo, why would you want to be intimate genitally? You wouldn't. So mm. I think maybe that's got something to do with it. But I mean, if that's their preference, it's really, really difficult to get around it if you're not happy with using a day regularly mm. and talking about it. Yeah, I think they're worried that they're being rejected and maybe it's them that's the issue. But I think, like you said before, a lot of people don't feel sexy unless they're clean. Like you mm. say, if you've got coffee breath, etc. I think that's really important. Yeah, it might be more about the partner than it is about her. They want to feel sexy before they have sex and they and they need to be clean to do that. And there is something really lovely about having clean breath and lovely, you know, tingly mouth after brushing your teeth and feeling that you smell nice. I mean, smelling yeah. wonderful is hot in itself. Mm. So I absolutely think that this could be a real turning point for them in terms of really finding a way to enjoy just settling into comfort with what they need to be sexual. And some people need to be really clean to be sexual. Yeah. And my friend has a B-Day and he said it's changed his life. He loves really? it. He loves it. He absolutely really? loves it. You can buy them quite cheap online and they like install on the side of your toilet bowl. And yeah, you just pick it up use it he, he loves it he's like i don't know why we ever 
Well, yeah, and it, but that. in a lot of countries, they have a little shower attached to the loo, don't they? That, that's, and, quite, that's basically what it is, yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah. that's that's brilliant. I mean, that mm. would that would be great, wouldn't yeah. it? And it's, it's fair enough, because he's, he put it to me, he was like, look, if you've got poo on any part of your body, would you just wipe it off with a piece of paper? No, you'd wash that bit of your absolutely, body. Absolutely, absolutely. So why do you leave it on your bum? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Excellent. Well, more great <laughs> insight from mum next week when I'll put a few more of your questions to her. So do keep sending them in. This is your chance for some accredited sex therapist advice. Thank you so much again to Meg John Barker for speaking to us today. A big thank you to accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. Thanks, mum. Thank you, Diggs. And thank you guys for listening, sharing and sending in your questions. We love you. We appreciate you. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Gamble. The show is produced by Diggory Waite, and the executive producer is Andy Goddard. The Real Sex Education is a hat-trick podcast. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, accredited sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But yes, Diggory does wish his mother was played by Gillian Anderson. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 